0: Well, this evening, we're going to be looking at 1 Peter, and uh, kind of as, as an extension of what we looked at last week, uh, one, of the, one of the points that I made last week when we were talking about discipleship is that as we pursue being a slave of Christ and being a sacrifice for Christ, we find that the epistles give us a pattern of instruction. We have an inspired pattern of instruction for discipleship within the epistles. And it's a bit oversimplified, I admit, but in an oversimplified way, uh, what the epistles do is clarify the gospel. And typically, the clarification takes place within uh, some kind of false teaching that's infiltrated the church or points of struggle in the lives of Christians where certain gospel truths need to be emphasized and clarified for the growth of believers. And as the epistles then clarify the gospel and clarify the gospel truth to believers that were scattered around the the world uh, as, as time progressed, as Christianity spread, they then take those truths and apply them to construct Christ-like thinking and affections. Our wills are to be dominated by Christ. We're we're to give ourselves as a sacrifice for Christ. And so within the milieu of life, within day-to-day life, within the pressures of life, we need the instruction that the epistles give to us so that our minds are being structured according to the thinking patterns of Christ, and our affections are being, are being informed according to what Christ loves and according to what He has said. And ultimately, as the gospel is clarified, as the gospel is applied and, and our thinking begins to mirror Christ. Uh, we The ultimate goal is that our life is offered in consecrated worship to the Lord 24-7. That we're always offering ourselves in consecrated worship to the Lord as we prepare for His return. So, I made the assertion that the epistles do this. They clarify the gospel and they help us to construct Christ-like thinking and affections leading to consecrated worship worship. So tonight, what what I want to do in 1 Peter is just kind of picture in your mind, how does that look in an epistle? Can we look at that in detail? And so, absolutely, that's what we're going to do. We're going to take 1 Peter and see how he is constructing Christ-like thinking by clarifying the gospel. And so my intention tonight is, is to overview the entire epistle in a way that will be a a pattern um, as you approach your Bible study in in the epistles. And I hope it will be helpful in that way, uh, as well as just encouraging us and, and strengthening us in the faith from what Peter writes to us here in this epistle. And, you know, one way to understand how the epistles were were or delivered originally, the apostles would write these letters and they would write them to churches. And very likely the leader of a church would take that letter when the church gathered and read it. And that was the message, this letter from the apostle. And so tonight, in a sense, that's what we're going to do. We're going to go through the whole sermon of First Peter. And with comment, obviously, to see the progression of his thinking throughout the whole epistle. And I pray that it will be an edifying thing for us this evening. So let's look at the first two verses. As Peter writes this epistle, he identifies himself Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Christ Jesus and for sprinkling with His blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you." So, in the introduction, we find, obviously, that Peter is writing uh, this epistle, and he's writing to believers, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, and he names several uh, regions in Asia Minor, present-day Turkey. Uh, the, this letter had, had a wide circulation to many uh, groups of believers And what we find as we work through the letter is that these believers are facing difficult times. They're pressured in their lives, and and they're living in a time of persecution from the Roman Empire. As Christians were blamed for the disasters in Rome, the persecution of Christians spread throughout the entire Roman world. And so in verse 6... Peter writes, In this you rejoice, speaking about the gospel, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And if you want to turn a couple pages to chapter four, Verse 12, there are other places throughout the epistle that we'll see, but I just want to point out the bookends. In verse 12 of chapter 4, Peter writes, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So Peter is writing to a number of bodies of believers spread out across the Roman world. And he's encouraging them with gospel truths in the midst of hard times, in the midst of difficulty as they face the pressure of persecution. And he begins by giving precious gospel truth. So point one tonight is clarifying the gospel. And what we find is that Peter does this at the beginning By identifying believers as elect exiles, verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. So he identifies them as believers. He identifies their position that they are in Christ because of the gracious choice of the Father. But then in verses 3 through 12, he expands on the glories of salvation. So put yourself in the place of a believer. Somewhere in Asia Minor, you're facing persecution. The pressures of life are bearing down. Even maybe the potential of death. There's family members that have rejected you. Uh, There's economic consequences for your faith in Christ, right? It seems like you have nowhere to turn. You're all alone. You don't know maybe where your next meal is going to come from. You might not even know if you're going to have a place to live, right? Desperate, hard times, difficult circumstances, but you're in Christ. And so this is where Peter starts. We're just going to read right down through verse 12, beginning at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in this last time. In this you rejoice." and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Why did Peter write in that way? Well, Peter is dealing with the challenge, facing those in difficult circumstances. Is it worth it to be a Christian? Is it worth it to be a Christian? I'm losing everything. Life is hard. And in this epistle, the clarification of the gospel is not so much a clarification In the face of doctrinal deviation, like Galatians or Hebrews, where there's Judaism trying to creep back in, that's not the kind of clarification that Peter is giving. Peter is giving a clarification of the glories of the gospel to suffering believers, to believers that are facing hard times. And, and we can summarize this. And, and again, there's a you know we could spend a lot of time going through Peter. The goal is to summarize the whole book, so we keep that in mind as we're as we're going through this tonight. So four four statements that summarize what Peter is doing. First of all. He reminds them of the reality that the Father chose you and the Son cleansed you. And that's right at the get-go. You were chosen. You were cleansed. This is your position. That's the reality. You were chosen by the Father and cleansed by the Son. And then in verses 3 through 5... He brings the readers to remember the new birth and heavenly inheritance. Remember your new birth and your heavenly inheritance. Verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And while you're losing everything on this earth, the inheritance that you have in Christ is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. So the, the ones that are persecuting you, they can take everything on this earth, but they can't touch what's in heaven. And they can't touch you because you're guarded by the power of God. And even if they take your life, you'll end up right in the presence of God. And that'll be a theme that he develops through the, through the epistle. Remember your new birth and heavenly inheritance. And you can see how if, if you're sitting there and you've lost everything or about to lose everything, immediately your mind is elevated to the glories of what you have in Christ that you cannot lose. Because you've been born again and you have a heavenly inheritance. And so in verses six through nine, rejoice. Rejoice because God is refining your saving faith. The trials, are testing, and they're refining, and they're proving the genuineness of your saving faith. And as you go through trials, even at the expense of everything perhaps that the world has to offer, you love Christ, whom you've not seen, but you believe, and you cling to Christ. Rejoice because God is refining your saving faith And in the last portion, in verses 10 through 12, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. And Peter is turning the attention to reflect on the revelation Reflect on the revelation concerning salvation. The salvation that you enjoy was something that was prophesied thousands and hundreds of years earlier. And it came to fruition as those prophets of old obeyed God to serve you. What you have in Christ is an outflow of what has been prophesied and what has been proclaimed. Look at the end of verse 12. And these things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. The whole revelation of salvation is something that God has been orchestrating for thousands of years through his prophets and, and he brought it to a point in your life personally when someone who had turned to Christ and who understood what Christ had done proclaimed the gospel to you and you turned to Christ. Reflect on the revelation concerning salvation both in the centuries past as the prophets prophesied of Christ. And also, this is just an astounding statement at the end of verse 12, things into which angels long to look. Things into which angels long to look. What you experience in your salvation, in your redemption, it has captured the attention of heavenly beings. You are a display of the manifold wisdom of God to the angels that surround the throne of God. You've experienced something that they never will. You've been redeemed. You were a sinner. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were lost. You had no interest in God. But you were made alive in Christ and you were redeemed. And that has captured the attention of the heavenly beings. Look at Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. Every now and then, we, we have these incredible statements in Scripture that just we really can't get our minds around. And Paul says something similar as he describes his ministry of preaching the gospel. In verse 8, Ephesians 3, verse 8, Paul writes, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities where... In the heavenly places. What is taking place in the church? What is taking place as God redeems individuals and gathers them in local bodies, and those local bodies function to the glory of God? What is taking place here on earth? What has been taking place for 2,000 years? What will continue to take place until the return of Christ is something that displays to the authorities, the principalities, the spiritual beings, the manifold. Wisdom of God. There is a cosmic audience to what takes place in the church, and Peter captures that in verse 12 things into which angels long to look. So, believer facing a hard time, perhaps having lost something or someone. Perhaps dealing with the pain of severed relationships for the sake of following Christ. There are so many trials, various trials that we face. Peter clarifies to you, consider the glories of your salvation in Christ. It's untouchable. It's refining your faith. And what God has done to save you, it's captured the the angel's attention. What a glorious statement we have in those first verses in Peter. Well, his clarification of the gospel in its most concentrated form is rather short. That's it. But what we'll find as we move through the epistle is that he weaves the themes in through his instructions. And so let's move now from the clarification of the gospel to Peter's constructing Christ-like thinking and affections. And this really takes us through the rest of the epistle. Constructing Christ-like thinking and affections. Here, Here is what your position is, Christian. It's glorious. It's settled. It has the attention of beings in heaven So how should you live? And and let's just think for a moment before we jump into verse 13. What often is a temptation when we face trials? What are we tempted to do when life becomes difficult in our flesh? Well, one, one temptation is to proverbially throw in the towel look what following Christ has gotten me into. Is it really worth it? Is it really worth it to live a life that honors Christ? And it's easy and as bitterness might take hold in our hearts and, and the pain and the pressures of, of trial to, to just kind of throw in the towel and say, you know what, I'm, I'm going to pursue my own self-indulgence. I'm going to find some way to just get rid of the pain. Instead of continuing to pursue God, it's a real temptation. And so when Peter clarifies the gospel as he moves to constructing Christ-like thinking and affections, this is how he begins. Verse 13, Therefore, preparing your minds for action... Don't go back. Don't be like the children of Israel who complained because they wanted the leeks and onions of Egypt when they were in the wilderness, when life got hard. Don't be like that. No, remember your glorious salvation and and think sober-mindedly. Set your hope fully on what is yet to come. Set your hope fully on the promises that are yours in Christ Jesus at his full revelation when he comes and he takes you to be with him. And so as obedient children, don't be conformed to the passions of your former life. Don't turn back. But be holy in all your conduct. And so, what we find in chapter 1, verse 13, through chapter 2, verse 12, are general directions for holy living. General directions for holy living. And we're just going to read through the, the three sections that we have here. In verses 13 through 21 of chapter 1, Peter instructs the readers to think realistically. What, how, how do I live a holy life? Well, first of all, think realistically, and that's the idea of verse 13, preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded. What is it to be sober-minded? It's to think according to the realities. The realities that Christ is coming, the realities that you're going to be standing before your Father, who's the judge of all, the realities that you were purchased by Christ. Think realistically. So let's pick up in verse 17. We've read verses 13 through 16 and, and pick up in his, on his train of thought. If you call him on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. "...knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot." He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. Think realistically. Where is your faith and hope as a child of God? Where is your faith and hope as one purchased by the precious blood of Christ? It's in God. It's not in this world. It's not in the things of the world. It's not in the people of the world. It's in God. Gird up the loins of your minds. Think soberly. Think realistically. In verse 22, Peter transitions from our personal thinking process to the body. And so from chapter one, verse 22 through chapter two, verse eight, he instructs us to love earnestly, think realistically and love earnestly. Verse 22. And yes, I am hoping to read through the whole epistle tonight. And this Word is the good news that was preached to you. So if I'm going to love earnestly, I need to take in the Word of God. To take in the Word of God, chapter 2, verse 1, "...so put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk." that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. We're pursuing love. We engage with the Word. We put aside those sinful attitudes of our heart. And as we do that, as we pursue loving one another earnestly, what takes place? Verse 4 As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious... But for those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. What's the outcome of loving earnestly? What's the outcome of body life? Well, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of opposition, God is constructing a holy building made up of His people a living temple. And it will be to the praise of His glory, and it's rooted not in anything in this earth, but it's rooted in Christ, who is the cornerstone. And so as we love earnestly, we end up right back at the foot of the cross, right back and in our love and affection for Jesus Christ, in our love and affection for one another and for a believer for a believer who understands and is and is in conflict with with all of the worldly influences around them, what you find is that the church of God is your lifeline. The people of God are the people who matter. The people of God are where you find encouragement and joy and peace as you come together, loving Christ and building one another up for the glory of God. Love earnestly. And then in verses 9 through 12, as Peter wraps up the general directions for holy living, so again, just to kind of keep us on the same page of where we are, he's, he's constructing Christ-like thinking and affections by giving general directions for holy living. We think realistically. That's personal. We love earnestly. That's what we do in regard to the church. And then in verses 9 through 12, we live distinctively. We live distinctively. And this defines our relationship to the world. Verse 9, But you... "...against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation." Live distinctively. Live according to what you are in Christ. You are light. You have a privileged position. And notice what he says in verse 11. As sojourners and exiles abstain from the passions of the flesh. Second time, he's brought up passions. What do the passions of the flesh do? They wage war against the soul. They wage war against the soul. Giving in to the lust of the flesh The passions of my flesh is not something that has no consequences. There's a spiritual effect. The passions of the flesh wage war against the soul. So keep your conduct honorable among the Gentiles that they may glorify God. It's not about you being better than them. You're not. You're a sinner just like they are. You're a sinner saved by grace. No, it's about shining forth the glories of God through the transformed life to the praise of the glory of His grace. That they might glorify God because of the testimony that you held forth. So how does that work out? He's given us these general directions for holy living. We think realistically, love earnestly, and live distinctively. But what we find as Peter continues to construct Christ-like thinking and affections is that he moves now from a general general directions to specific applications for holy living. Specific applications for holy living. He begins in the public square. And in verses 13 through 25, He gives us two examples of holy conduct in public relationships. Holy conduct in public relationships. Verse 13, beginning with a relationship to government. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. By the way, the emperor was not a Christian. He was evil, he was immoral, but he was placed there by God. And so Peter's instruction is that believers respond to those in authority regardless of of what their character is as those who have been placed by God. Now, obviously, if they tell us to disobey God, Peter himself says in Acts 5.29, we must obey God rather than man. But the general posture of a believer toward government is to honor the emperor and to be at liberty to serve God and to love God in that way. Verse 18 now moves to the economic interactions as he deals with servants. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a precious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were strained like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. As Peter directs us in holy conduct in public relationships, he roots it in what Christ did for our redemption. Is it hard to submit to policies that we don't like and that are difficult? Yes. But the example that Peter holds up is Christ suffering unjustly on the cross for your redemption. That's the baseline. That's the point of comparison. We look to Christ, even in the midst of unjust treatment. In chapter 3, Peter transitions from public relationships to private relationships. And he goes to the most intimate of human relationships, marriage. In verses 1 through 6, he addresses wives, and in verse 7, husbands, and, and you need to we need to think about this in terms of first generation Christians where you had many mixed households where one spouse was saved and the other one wasn't. And Peter is addressing the, the spouse that is in Christ and saying, this is, how, this is how you order your life to the glory of God. This is how you conduct yourself in a holy manner in the private relationship as a reflection of what God has done for you. Chapter 3, verse 1, Likewise, wives be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct... Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. This is one of those passages that is, I frequently use in, in counseling because it, it addresses about everything. But the important thing to recognize in these roles is that they're connected to who you are in Christ. In other words, what Peter calls wives to do and what Peter calls husbands to do is impossible. It's impossible on your own strength. You can't do it. You can only do it as one in whom Christ dwells and through the power of the Spirit of God. But nearly every marital problem in some way, shape, or form comes back to one of these issues. And this is the most convicting verse, I think, for husbands in all of the Bible. Husbands... Live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. And if he stopped there, okay. That's that's strong. It's, It's convicting. But then he has to add this. He has to add this. And he has to do it because the Holy Spirit had him do it. So that your prayers may not be hindered. In other words, what Peter is instructing husbands by the Holy Spirit is that the way that we interact with our wives has an effect on our prayers. And when he says to treat them with honor as the weaker vessel, you know, that's obviously unpopular in this day. But I have a good friend who's an associate pastor up in Columbus, and, and this is the way he describes it. He says, you know what? Guys are just like tin cans. You can kick them around and they're fine. They may get dented, but you can still kick them around. Our wives are like vases or vases, however you say it. Weaker but precious. Fragile but beautiful. You don't kick a vase around. You protect it. So husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. And he's saying, it, he's saying it likely to husbands who have unbelieving wives, just like he addressed wives with unbelieving husbands. How much more those of us who have believing wives? I say it to my own conviction. I, I told you this was the most convicting verse, men. <laughs> holy conduct in private relationships. In the last part of the book from chapter 3, verse 8, down through chapter 5, Peter is going to go back and forth between holy conduct in the church and holy conduct in the midst of persecution. So in verses 3 through 12... Peter addresses holy conduct in the body, particularly our unity. Verse 8, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And again, that section began in verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind. So he's talking to the church and he's saying, this is how you pursue unity. You put away what is evil. You put away reviling. You bless one another. You overlook sin where you can. You forgive and you guard your own mouth and you seek peace. Holy conduct in the body. Then in verses 13 down through chapter 4, verse 6, Peter describes holy conduct in persecution, holy conduct in persecution. And, and he describes it in this way, that as you face persecution, as, you're, as, as you are in the midst of trial and suffering for the sake of the Lord, your life should be a proclamation of Christ. So be ready to give it a defense. Be ready to proclaim Christ and to identify Christ through baptism. And yes, I think in verse 21, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's talking about water baptism in the same way that James talks about works or faith that works. The baptism itself is not the saving, the saving aspect, but a saved believer will identify with Christ through baptism. And it's in the context of a proclamation in the midst of persecution. And if you think about what could happen to a believer in that context when they identified with Christ, they could lose everything because of it. And then at the beginning of chapter 4, he deals with their proclamation in the midst of suffering through a holy life. Proclaim Christ through a holy life. So holy conduct and persecution. Let's begin in verse 13. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formally did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal or an answer to God out of a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to Him. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions but for the will of God." For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. Now I realize that there are three verses in that passage that are noted as the most difficult verses in the entire New Testament to, tri- to interpret. The spirits that Jesus pre- preached to are likely the demons or the fallen angels in Noah's day. I already mentioned what baptism is, that it's a water baptism proclaiming identity with Christ. And then in verse 6, those to whom the gospel preached uh, that are dead are speaking about those who receive the gospel but are now dead. In other words, it was preached to them and then they died. And so now they can live in the Spirit the way God does. And I haven't given, obviously, all the alternatives there, but those are the simple explanations for those passages. The point of the entire section, Peter is instructing these believers in the midst of suffering, keep on proclaiming Christ Keep on proclaiming who you are in Christ. Refuse to compromise and go back to your former way of living so that your life will be a testimony to the praise of the glory of God. Now in verse 7, he transitions back to body life. So as I'm living for the Lord and and waiting for His return, suffering. How do I continue to live within the body? Well, verses 7 through 11 instruct us in our service in the body. The end of all things is at hand. Whoever speaks as the one who speaks the oracles of God, and whoever serves as the one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. We serve, we continue to serve one another even in the face of hardship so that the glory of God continues to be proclaimed through the church. Moving to chapter 4, verse 12, Peter again transitions to persecution. So he's gone body, body life, live in unity. In the midst of persecution, keep proclaiming. Back to body life, continue to serve one another, and now in persecution, remain patient. Remain patient. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evil doer or as a meddler. Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Are you suffering? Don't be surprised. Are you suffering? Keep entrusting yourself to God. Are you suffering? Keep doing good. Be patient. Well, we're almost done. Chapter 5, back to body life. He's taught us about unity, about service, and now in verses 1 through 5, we're taught about humility. Humility. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ... Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Well, maybe that's the most convicting portion of Peter. Humility in the body of Christ. Being like Christ, submitting to one another. And again, it's related all the way back to who we are in Christ because it's impossible otherwise. Well, in verses 6 through 11, Peter summarizes holy conduct. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time He may exalt you casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To Him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. What's at stake? What's at stake as we, as we saturate our minds in the gospel What's at stake as we respond to the instruction and the directions of Christ to, to set aside the passions of our flesh that wage war against the soul? Well, Peter reminds us that there is, again, there is a spiritual battle going on. Our salvation has captured the attention of heavenly beings. And we also have a spiritual foe, the devil, who is intent... On keeping us from being effective in our service to God. And so, as Peter wraps up the epistle, calling suffering, pressed, tired, trial ridden Christians to serve Christ, he reminds us and elevates. The stakes by, by telling us there is a spiritual conflict going on here. So continually humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, knowing at the proper time, He will exalt you and you can cast all your cares on Him because He cares for you. So think according to those realities. Think realistically, be sober-minded and watchful because you do have an adversary prowling around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in the faith. And understand that this is a conflict that is going on wherever the body of Christ exists. But ultimately, your suffering is just a little while. Right, think about your suffering like the like the dash between the birth and death dates on a gravestone. It's not very big. After you've suffered a little while, what then? Well, the God of all grace, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself. Restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To Him be dominion. Who's in charge? To Him be dominion. Forever and ever. Amen. And he closes by Silvanus, a faithful brother. As I regard him, I've written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Peter clarifies the gospel. It's glorious. He helps us to construct Christ-like thinking and affections with general directions for holy living and specific applications for holy living and as we wrap up, I just want to point out three themes of consecrated worship. First of all, pattern your response according to Christ's suffering. How many times did we come across that in the passage or in the book? Chapter 1, 11, and verses 17 and 19, chapter 2, 21 through 25, chapter 3, 18, 4, 1, 413, 416, 19, 5, 1, and 10. Christ sufferings. So as you pursue Christ-like thinking and affections, pattern your response to the suffering, to the trials, to the difficulties, pattern your response according to Christ's suffering. A second theme is that we put off, we put off fleshly passions and desires Chapter 1, verse 14, chapter 2, 11, and 4, 2, and 3. Don't go back to those ways. Pattern your response according to Christ's suffering. Put off fleshly passions and desires. And, and ultimately, ultimately, place yourself in God's hands. Look at chapter 2, verse 23. Speaking of Christ, when He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten, but continued entrusting Himself to Him who judges justly. Now, look at chapter 4, verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will and trust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Place yourself entirely in God's hands. And as you meditate on what Peter has written, the Word of God works in our lives so that wherever this is intersecting for you right now, wherever His Word is, is dealing with your soul in the midst of a trial or instructing you in, in the midst of temptation, His Word is sufficient because Christ is sufficient and the Spirit of God is sufficient to lead you into the presence of Christ For all eternity will you forever be free from sin and suffering and worship and serve your Creator with no more tears for eternity. And may that dominate our thinking as we continue to walk in this life for the glory of God. Father, we thank you for the Word of God. It is so rich. You've given us so much and we confess that we so often take these treasures lightly. We allow your words to uh, bounce off our minds quickly. We ask that you would forgive us for that and that you would give us tender souls and hearts to receive the word tonight. We thank you for the encouragement of Peter. And we ask that Christ would dominate our thinking even as we leave tonight for your glory. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening from Truth Community Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. You can find more church information and other helpful materials at thetruthpulpit.com. Teaching God's people, God's Word. This message is copyrighted, all rights reserved.